Hi everyone and welcome to Global Careers Calls, the podcast of the University of London Career Service, where we uncover inspirational career journeys from around the world. In the seventh season, Dr. Edwin Ma, Careers Consultant at the University of London, will accompany us in the world of humanities and help us to explore some of the more unusual careers paths that University of London students and graduates have taken in this field. We'll explore the unique skills that humanities graduates develop, discover the uncommon professional journeys that our speakers have taken, and how their humanities degrees have been pivotal in their careers, both within and beyond the humanistic field. So whether you study the humanities subject, or are just interested in finding out more about a different sector, stay tuned to discover the unique career choices of our guest. This week, we focus on humanities applied to the technology sector with Carlo Di Celico. Carlo, who's based in New England, US, will illustrate to us how he's using his BA studies in philosophy with the University of London to inform his job in developing AI technologies. He'll retrace his career from his early steps as a computer repair technician until his current job position as AI project leader. And finally, he'll share with us his predictions on the future of AI and describe to us the transdisciplinary nature of his job, crossing the borders of technology philosophy and ethics hope you enjoy the conversation so thank you so much carlo for joining us today on this episode of our global careers call podcast so i was wondering to start us off in a few sentences could you tell us a little bit about who Carlo Desalico is about a bit about yourself and where you're calling in from today. Yes, Carlo Desalico, I live in Maine in New England in the US and I work in as a AI project leader at Boston Consulting Group. I've worked in technology for over 20 years now, mostly in tech startups. I've been a co-founder twice and an early early engineer several times and so on and sort of worked my way up into management. And I am a student online with the University of London in the philosophy program. Yeah, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. And you're indeed working in such an important and cutting edge area at the moment with all your work on AI. Can you tell our listeners, how did you find your current job? Did you apply for it through a particular um, vacancy board? Did you use um, some of your networking contacts? Could you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. So the process for finding jobs is a little messy, I think, in the tech startup world, but I came into Boston Consulting Group via an acquisition. And so I worked in a Silicon Valley startup called Formation, which did machine learning platform for loyalty rewards programs. And we were acquired into BCG. And so th- this is what we refer to as a, an aqua hire, where most of the team was brought over as employees. Yes. And how I found my job with Formation actually was through my networks and through a per- particular one of my contacts who is a tech recruiter. So it's good to make friends with tech recruiters if you're in tech. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Very good advice there to sort of 
build your network and yes. think about those sort of recruiters that you can that you can have on on side and sort of thinking back to when you started your work in this sector what was it that motivated you to join the tech sector and how would you say that the industry that you're working in aligns with your values carlo what a wonderful question well i started out in tech actually in hardware and I went around all over New York. I'm originally from New York, fixing people's computers. And this was back in the early 2000s. So way before the, the tech boom that we see today, but it was on the tail end of the first dot-com bubble. So I became interested in tech just because it was something that I realized I was good at and could do. And I thought that it was really going to change people's lives and have a massive impact on the world. Even back then, I realized the potential of tech to really impact people's lives and change the world. So I thought this is a good place for me to go if I want to help change things for the better. And I've always been interested actually in AI. When I first started out in tech, as I said, I was in hardware and I moved over into software over time. But I was very fascinated by AI and I was always reading about it. But there were no jobs, really. AI was not really much of a thing back then. And so over the course of my career, that has changed. And now, of course, there are more AI opportunities than ever before. And so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. And I think it, it, with respect to the second part of your question, I I think it aligns with my values in the sense that I do believe in technology's ability to improve human life, to make life more convenient or to democratize things. You know, that's what we've seen a lot of technology platforms be used for, is for democratization of various aspects of our society, which is something that I believe very strongly in. And it's also interesting because of the philosophical aspects of it, the ethical aspects. Should we be making this product or service? <laughs> Does it need to exist? If so, how? how should it exist in the world and so on? But of course, the roots of technology are also in mathematics and philosophy with George Boole and Bertrand Russell and all of this. And so all of that interests me very much. If you study discrete mathematics, you also can do philosophy. And if you've taken a logic course, you also can understand discrete mathematics. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm really sort of pleased that you're bringing that, that up because you're anticipating my next question there, Carlo which is that you mentioned that you're studying the BA philosophy program as a distance learner. So why did you choose that subject in particular? And how do you see that fitting into your career in the tech sector? So I went back to school later in life. I didn't go to school uh, at the time when most people do. <laughs> so I went straight into the workforce. And now that I'm able to, I am going back to school. And I started out actually in the University of London's online computer science program through with the academic direction from Goldsmiths. And that was fun. But it was also for me, this is something that I've been doing for over two decades. I didn't feel challenged uh, and I didn't feel interested. I didn't feel like my interest was really captured the way it is by philosophy. And so I thought about it and... The, the nature of the questions I was asking myself led me to philosophy. You know, mm -hmm. in, in computer science or, or software engineering, we say, how can we build this thing? But I'm always the person in the room saying, should we build it at all? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so this, this is kind of the thing that led me to philosophy. You're the voice who was missing in Jurassic Park. 
uh, yeah, to quote that exactly. famous <laughs> that famous line from <laughs> from the film. And you know, you're mentioning there your kind of excitement about how technology can change the world and lead to such innovation, and also your awareness of some of those ethical dilemmas. Now, for many of our listeners, they may be reading some of the doomsday kind of predictions that have been in the media around AI recently. What would you say to those listeners about your views on how AI might impact our future working? Yes, I do think there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt around AI, even among professionals at work all the time. I'm constantly having to reassure people. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, I, I would say a couple of things. So first, I would say try to, you know, learn the basics of how these models work, because dis- demystifying the the understanding of how this particular kind of artificial intelligence works. Because remember, this is Gen AI in particular, which is what I think most people are talking about now, is based on deep learning, which has roots in machine learning, which is a specific small subset of all the possible AI solutions you could have, right? So just demystifying it can take away a lot of its power to sort of make us afraid. <laughs> Especially mm-hmm. when you understand how it works. You're not as prone to anthropomorphize it when you understand how it works because you realize right away that it isn't doing what our minds do (laughs) and so that's one aspect the other aspect is to know that a lot of people are out there trying to make sure that we use this technology responsibly and that everyone can participate in that process if you have something to say try to find a channel in which to say it and and say what you have to say so that we can all contribute to a, a responsible ai over the future um And this is actually what I work on at work right now. I'm working on a case where we're trying to build an adversarial AI testing approach and library so that we can test Gen AI applications and make sure that they adhere to responsible AI policies and so on. So I would say, don't be afraid. It's, it's not going to replace people. You know, the, the thing that I've been saying is it's sort of like, if you're already really good at what you do, whatever that is, then AI-based tools are going to enhance your capabilities, but you still need to develop the skills and and techniques and everything and experience in order to know what the model, whether or not what the model produces is any good at all. And to evaluate that qualitatively, you need to have the expertise. Uh, it's sort of like working with a really gifted intern. They may be extremely smart and really, really well-read and well-studied and high top scorers and all of this. But you still need to have the experience to know how to work with them and to, to, to tell them, okay, this is where your work is excellent. Here's where it could use a little bit more improvements and so on. And working with these models is a lot like that. I really like your points there and sort of the um, real world applications that you're mentioning. And it, I think it would be really interesting to see how this is embraced, not only in our working lives, but also in education that, you know, much as we are perhaps using library resources and having to sort the good quality text from the less good quality articles, as one of my professors said, just because something's been published doesn't mean it's any good. It's kind of going to be the same with with AI and having to use our own um, intuition and our own intelligence to sort out the um, high quality outputs from the outputs that are perhaps a bit more flaky or poorly thought through. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. That's that's really interesting to to hear. And something that you've um, mentioned quite a lot already, Carlo, is sort of the 
um, transdisciplinary nature of your work in AI that you're bringing in lots of different areas from technology, mathematics, and now philosophy. So do you think that a multidisciplinary skill set is going to be important for people working in your sector? Absolutely, without question. In fact, I think I've always kind of had this interdisciplinary streak in my personality, I suppose. And I've constantly found myself in my career in the in-between spaces between different teams, between the business people and the tech people, or between the marketing people and the business people, you know. And so <laughs> I've always been this sort of person who's in between making everything go. And I think that interdisciplinary uh, approaches are extremely important in general, but becoming more important now. And you know, there's always room for specialists in teams. This is why we have teams, right? Everybody is good at something and some people are go deep, some people go broad, but there is a lot of demand for generalists. And I would say also that there's, it's important to tie together humanities and STEM skills. You know, there's an important balance to be had there. And I think people who come from the humanities, like especially in particular philosophy, but, but all humanities, te which teach critical thinking and analysis and things like that, can be effective contributors in STEM context because of the way that they reason. And it's important to note, too, that most people in STEM disciplines don't receive the kind of reasoning training that you get from humanities. So I think interdisciplinary is definitely the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's really great to hear, and particularly your thoughts there on sort of the value of the humanities degrees, because so often, you know, we mentioned that we hear about the doom and gloom of AI and how it will replace everyone's jobs. And as you've mentioned, that's a narrative that we might well want to challenge and question. But equally, we always hear in the media about the doomed future of the humanities and that there's no place for humanities research in an increasingly STEM age. And it's really quite exciting to hear your thoughts that are actually these two things can work together really effectively and that studying the humanities does give you a unique set of skills that you can apply in a technology landscape. Absolutely. Uh, a small experiment I'll, I'll offer as an example that I've done on my own is I found a, a hand-bound, handwritten text, something I found locally, and I scanned it into the computer and then I'm using deep learning to do character recognition to, to turn the handwriting into text. And then I'll feed this text into an LLM where you can interact with this historical document. So here's a, an example of using, you know, AI to do historical research potentially. And, and approaches like this could be very common in the future, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, the things like the digital humanities, as you're mentioning there, it's such a booming area and it's sort of really great to hear your real world experience of doing that kind of kind of project. And so we sort of mentioned there a bit around um, your motivations in studying philosophy and perhaps how that relates to, to some of the ethics. And we've also mentioned there the importance of thinking in an interdisciplinary way and um, actually, the fact that STEM and the humanities are perhaps not as far removed as as we might initially think they are. And um, the next question I sort of, I wanted to ask there is, how do you think that a focus on bringing the humanities into STEM might make AI more human centric? Do you think it will influence and affect how we design and develop AI systems if we have? more perspectives from people such as yourself studying a humanities program. Absolutely. It definitely will. I bring this 
the skill set I've accrued so far in this philosophy program has been extremely helpful to me. I bring it to conversations at work every single day. Here are mm -hmm. some different ethical frameworks we could use to look at this problem. Mm -hmm. Here are a couple of different arguments we could consider. And then we go into the exercise of theory choice and so on. It's like, you know, that whole of working as a philosopher is, believe it or not, philosophy is something that people often don't think is very useful, but I find it extremely useful every single day. I'm using this, this discipline at work in a professional consulting context, you know, working in a STEM context. So it's absolutely useful. And I would say further that there's a narrative, I think, a popular narrative, which I think exists mostly in the popular imagination of this sort of division or this dichotomy between humanities and and science, you know, or and I think this is a false dichotomy. Okay. I think mm -hmm. that what happens is that when humanities researchers and social scientists and, and and other STEM scientists, STEM people like hard scientists, life scientists and so on, all of these different disciplines come together and work together, they come up with the most effective outlooks and solutions as a result of that. And the reason is because we, we obviously can't learn everything, so we have to specialize, but we complement each other, you know. So even at an individual level, I think still people can learn a little bit of everybody else's skill on the team, right? So even as an early engineer, I used to study a little bit of design and study a little bit of marketing and study a little bit of this and that to appreciate what my colleagues are contributing, but also to understand what they're saying and really make sure that I'm understanding what they're saying. And so I think it's interesting that in, if you study as a physicist, physicist, for example, you'll never take a, a philosophy of science course as a physicist, most likely, you know, most mm -hmm. programs won't have you do that. And it's a shame, you know, and in philosophy programs, we take philosophy of science but maybe we don't take a, a, a hard science course or a mathematics course, which you could. You could choose to on your own. But I think interdisciplinary education like that is going to be more common in the future because it's not enough to, to have this fundamental empiricist worldview, but not understand the implicit assumptions you're bringing to the table. And that's the thing that I think philosophy unlocks is this ability to have a sensitivity to implicit assumptions. Um, mm -hmm. Or one of the things, at least. Absolutely. And again, I really like your comments there, Carlo, that it's not about having that dichotomy, that, you know, there's not a clear delineation between academic subjects, but actually things overlap, things work together. And there's an incredible benefit that comes from having as many diverse voices and disciplines as possible sitting around the table to That's share right. their unique, unique views on things. Yes, absolutely. And if you if you imagine perhaps we have a listener who is studying a humanities subject and is considering moving into the tech sector, would you have any advice for that student who's considering that career change? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the networks networking is very important. You know, the the University of of London student groups are wonderful. Obviously, the philosophy group is very wonderful and supportive. All the students are amazing and extremely good philosophers. <laughs> and I would say definitely focus on the network. If there are alums or people like myself or whomever that you encounter, feel free to reach out to them and try to figure out the specifics of how you want to contribute in tech. That's important because mm. if you want to be an AI ethicist or 
or bring humanity's sensitivity to design. I think design around AI uh, is going to be very important because we're about to change. Our our hardware modalities are about to change, uh, you know, in the next few years because of the because of the impact of LLMs and so on. But we need human centered design and who better to do that than people trained in the humanities? <laughs> so I think there's going to be actually more opportunity, not less. And so I would think I would think about how I want to contribute. Fantastic. And again, that's so exciting to hear those opportunities that are available. And again, you know, we've spoken a lot about some of the doom and gloom that we hear in the media. And it's so positive to hear your views there that actually it's not negative at all but there's a lot of opportunities there and a lot of growth in the sector and you've mentioned there some of those changes that you see particularly around the hardware side of things and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that you know it's obviously yours as a sector that's changing and developing quite a lot at the moment but if you were to predict how your sector might evolve over the coming few years what changes would you expect to see? Well, it's a great question. Yeah, I think about this all the time, obviously. But I think that the first thing is that related to Gen AI in particular, I think we're mostly over the peak of the hype bubble. So this year, people are going to get very serious about how we use this, how we design experiences around this capability, how do we optimize it and make it more efficient and sustainable and all of these kinds of things. So it's going to be maybe a little less of the sensational uh, aspect and a little less of the varieties of different chatbots and things. And it's going to be more uh, built-in capabilities into software and things like that. The other thing that I would expect to see in the years following are an increase in, in wearables and technologies designed to replace our screens. Uh, I think there is a trend Technology is reaching to try to always make things irrelevant, like the current modality. It's just a stepping stone, this phone, you know, to something much better. And I think we're going to see a lot of increase in wearables, in smart technology. Of course, we've been developing IoT for quite a long time, Internet of Things. And so now that we have large language models and other technologies like VR and AR, for example, All of these things are going to come together into new kinds of experiences, new ways of interacting with the world through technology, new ways of leveraging technology to solve problems and gain insights, and so on. And so I think we're really on the cusp of a kind of a, not to wander off into hyperbole, but I think we're on the edge of a new age of accelerated human learning and capability because of all these technologies that are coming together. And as a result of that, I think we're going to see a lot of the things that we find familiar today will will kind of go away and become deprecated. Do you think that that change will be as significant as the birth of the internet at the end of the 20th century? It's a very big philosophical question. Yes, (laughs) I think it's going to be very big. Yes, I think it's going to be very big. Yeah, one example that I was talking to a friend of mine who's a founder of of a VR AR startup is the idea of using LLMs in the context of VR and AR to support education. So imagine you want to go to Japan and learn the language and customs. You want to be, of course, very polite as a a visitor. And so it's important to learn not just the language, but also the customs. And so in an immersive experience, 
you could do this and the LLM could generate the, the responses from the non-player characters. It could generate textual content. It could generate scenarios, uh, all sorts of things, even, even the, the models potentially. You know, we could build the 3D models more quickly using GenAI. And so it becomes more efficient to deliver these extremely powerful, immersive educational experiences than, than ever before. And so this is just one example of the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Wonderful. And I'm thinking about your job at Boston Consultancy Group. What would be one thing that perhaps people might underestimate about your job? I think, you know, I think one thing people might underestimate is the genuine uh, thoughtfulness and, you know, care for human concerns that I've personally, at least in my experience at BCG, I've seen quite a lot of this. And I think consulting has a, a little bit of a bad rep when it comes to things like this. We're, we're sometimes seen as very somewhat mercenary, I suppose. <laughs> but that just hasn't been my experience, I'll say. I'll say that the, the people who work there genuinely care about their clients. They want to deliver the, the best that they can for their clients. And they want to do it in a responsible and sustainable and ethical way. I mean, we talk about ethics on every single case that I've been on. You know, what's the right thing to do here? And that is really encouraging for me. That's wonderful. And, you know, on a related note there, was there anything about your job that came as a surprise to you? Didn't expect to enjoy this consulting world as much as I do, to be honest. <laughs> Having <laughs> been in tech startups for most of my career, you know, we have a very sort of pirates versus the Navy attitude, right? <laughs> and yeah, when I came into BCG, it was just not at all what I expected. It was not a super ultra corporate, uncreative environment uh, where people had very mercenary attitudes it just none of that was right it was all mm -hmm. incorrect on my part and uh, <laughs> I actually enjoy it quite a lot it's very relaxed and uh, people do care quite a bit about mm -hmm. their clients and each other in the world so yeah mm -hmm. wonderful and imagine again we might have a listener who is thinking about whether to join a startup or to join a more established company. And in fact, this is a question that I've been asked many times when speaking with, with students. Would you have any words of wisdom or advice for a student who is perhaps deciding where to begin their career, whether to go for the pirate or the Navy, to use your, <laughs> your analogy yeah. there? Yeah, it depends a lot on the individual. You know, I still love the world of startups and the excitement and the, the feeling of starting something new and stretching my capabilities uh, and all that. But I would say that a larger, more ex established company, it really accelerates your learning and development in different ways. And you can learn mental models and frameworks and approaches and techniques that you can then bring into a smaller startup later if you want. So it's difficult to say, and they're not totally mutually exclusive in your career, right? You could go to a startup for a while and then go to a larger, more established company for a while and compare for yourself. But yeah, if you like excitement and have a healthy appetite for risk, I would say startups are very exciting. They accelerate your growth in certain ways. You have to wear many hats and you have to move fast and so on. And then if you're maybe a little more risk averse and and so on, you could go to a more established company and learn 
some of the more like mature frameworks and mental models. So you get different things from each experience, I think. Absolutely. And again, perhaps thinking of someone who's looking to start their career in the sector, are there any skills that you would say are particularly important for either consultancy or tech or the two together consultancy in tech? <laughs> sure. I, you know, I, it's sort of maybe a bit cliche to say, but uh, critical thinking is probably the most important thing. Um, and then <laughs> Increasingly, emotional intelligence is extremely important. Uh, as a consultant, you are a trusted advisor, which there's actually a book called Trusted Advisor <laughs> uh, that talks all about this. But, you know, it's you, you build trust and you deliver on the promise. And, and that is very nuanced. It's an art. And so emotional intelligence is extremely important. And then obviously hard tech skills are always good and always valuable. Learn how to use the tools of your trade and use them well. You know, if you can go from user to power user, that's great. If you can go from power user to developer or something, that's great. The more effective you are at using your tools, the more effective you'll be in your career. That's really good advice. Whatever the sector, really, learn the tools of your trade and learn to use them well, I think is something that will resonate for, for many of our listeners. And now, just sort of wanted to ask you a little bit about your geographical context that you are on the east coast of the US and your career has largely been built in in the United States. So for any of our listeners who are considering building their careers in the US, would you have any advice for them in navigating the American labor market? Sure. I would say a lot of it is is networks-based and there are a lot of also resources like recruiters are great platforms like I think there's one called PathRise that's really good that you can, you know, sort of go through this program and then they help you sort of prepare to interview and things like that. So there are a lot of things now available that weren't available when I was starting out <laughs> that uh, make things a lot, a lot easier. And uh, yeah, just connect with other people and and look for some of these platforms and, and, and tech recruiters, especially if you're looking to get into tech. You know, tech recruiters mm -hmm. are extremely helpful. And um, a stereotype that I often heard about the U.S. labor market is quite long working hours and sort of an emphasis on taking work home with you at the end of the day. Do you find that stereotype to be true or is that an incorrect assumption on my part? And if that stereotype is in any way accurate, would you have any advice for any sort of recent graduates or, or more experienced graduates in navigating some of those work-life balances? Yeah, that's a good observation. I, I think it is largely true. The American culture is one where it's founded on this idea of hard work. It, it has roots all the way back to the what they call the Puritan work ethic, right? <laughs> Which now we know is is not necessarily a great for people. But I think the 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 culture is shifting, though. Many many companies are adopting more open policies about these things and making sure that people have mandatory time off, not just that you have a collection of days you might take if you like, but that you must take these t this time off, you know, and <laughs> setting boundaries and things like that. 
It's difficult too, because top performers, I think, tend to be a little bit type A, right? (laughs) You know, you want to deliver, you want to, so we want to take our work home a lot of times. And so that creates a culture. If you get enough of those people, you have a critical mass, then then that affects the culture, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I think that's part of it as well. It's not all from the companies. It's also partially from the individuals themselves. And so I think in terms of advice for what to do to manage that, I would say set healthy boundaries, you know, at the end of the day, log off and do not answer any emails, texts, nothing. Walk away. Just walk away. (laughs) If you're on vacation, be on vacation. Set boundaries, communicate, let people know this is how I work. When I'm off, I'm off. I need that time. And people will be understanding and respectful as long as you set those boundaries and, and stick to them. Mm-hmm. No, that's really good advice. And so important, isn't it, to think about well-being, especially in a fast-paced working environment, such as the industry that, that you're working within. And um, kind of reflecting on your career to date, you know, we've mentioned some of the future changes that you expect to see. But now looking back throughout your career journey, what are the biggest changes that you've seen already in your professional landscape? And how might the students and graduates of today prepare for this for some of the changes that they are going to encounter across their working lives? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen over the course of my career is the increasing availability of good quality information. When mm-hmm. I first started out, I was, as I said, a self-taught engineer. There wasn't much available, you know, I, and I didn't have any money. So I would go to the bookshop and at Union Square and I would read books on programming. I would take notes on a yellow legal pad and then I would go and practice on a work computer, you know, in between doing stuff at work. So there was not a lot of information. I think the, the, the biggest online resource that I remember at the time was MIT's Open Courseware. And they had these videos online where you could get a whole computer science education, <laughs> but there was, there was no Coursera or edX or, you know, stuff like that just didn't exist at the time. And now it's just, there's educational resources everywhere and it's really, it's almost overwhelming, right? So you have to curate it. You have to create a, you know, curated list of these are the resources I'm going to look into and study and so on. But it's actually really great because you can get up to speed on something that you totally unfamiliar with quite quickly now. And I find that very encouraging because it opens up opportunities for people to learn and understand each other, understand the industry and accelerates your progress in your career. And yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest things is this democratization of learning, which is just totally changing the whole world for the better, I think. Absolutely. And something that you're mentioning there, Carlo, is that it is sometimes overwhelming just how much of that learning is available and Certainly on certain platforms that might be pushed quite a forceful way onto people, you know, go and do this course. This is what you need to get ahead in in the career. So for for a student or graduate who's faced with that overwhelming array of courses and promotions and free online learning, how would you suggest navigating through that sea of, of material that's out there and perhaps finding the gems and finding what's useful among just this overwhelming wall of content? That's a wonderful question. Very insightful question because the this points to a deeper problem where each and every one of us needs to be an expert curator of the information we consume in, across all contexts, right? Not just learning. 
<laughs> but how do we do that, right? And so I like w- one thing you might consider is the source. You know, uh, do they give us sources? Are they transparent about where they got their information? How trustworthy are they? And so on. All this stuff matters. And so when I was starting out as a philosophy student, actually, I didn't understand how to operate in an academic context at all. And I read, I think I read the all sorts of things, the Oxford Style Guide or something. And then there was a, an online course, Academic Foundations, I believe it was called, through Oxford Continuing Education Online. And in there, they give this whole rubric for exactly how to evaluate sources. They say, well, if they cite their sources, that's good. You know, consider spelling and use of language, consider all these different factors to evaluate and try to understand how good this source is. And that was an extremely helpful starting place for me, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, just build your collection based on your own development of an idea of how trustworthy this source is. Fantastic. And I really love the um, quote you gave there, Carla, that you need to be an expert creator of the information we consume across all contexts. You know, I've copied that, written it down, and I'm sure I'll be using it in some of my online delivery with, with students. That's such a wonderful soundbite. And we find ourselves back with AI, don't we? And the points that you were making earlier, that we need to be increasingly critical of the information we're given. And we can have the best large language models out there, but we still need to be educated in how to sift that content. And we also find ourselves back with, as you were saying, critical thinking and really analysing the information that we've been given and not just absorbing that, but actually thinking, OK, is this right? Does this seem legitimate? So really deep questions and concepts emerging there. Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of my favorite courses that I've done so far has been epistemology. I loved it. The the idea of, you know, what is knowledge? How do we know? How do we know that we know? <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Very important questions. Yeah. Especially in a knowledge economy, it's important mm-hmm. to have a deep understanding of what exactly knowledge is and how we obtain knowledge. So, yeah. Absolutely. And Sort of looking back on your career journey today, this is a question that I've enjoyed asking to to all of my guests on this series of the podcast. But you know, looking back on that career, do you feel you had a career plan? No, not not by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I knew you know the realm in which I wanted to play and operate, and the kinds of things that I wanted to work on, the kinds of people I wanted to work with in terms of skill and experience. But I did not have this sort of 10-year plan of here's where I want to be. Yeah, looking back, I'm kind of reminded of this idea of Wu Wei, you know, effortless effort from Taoist philosophy. And mine was sort of like very effortful, effortless effort. (laughs) It was sort of me working very hard to sort of go from one thing to the next and But yeah, I think as you get older, uh, I'm 44, by the way, Uh, I look back on my career over 20 years and I I think we have a great deal less control than we think we do. And so it's nice to have a plan if if you're the sort that likes to have plans, (laughs) then, then feel free to plan away. Just don't be too attached to the plan, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And looking back on your career journey so far, is there anything that you wish you would have known earlier? Mm, that's very good. I guess I wish that 
maybe I wish I would have known about University of London earlier. <laughs> um, that that would have been nice. Yeah, I mean, going back, if I could tell myself anything, it would be just to relax and not be too stressed out about my career and its progression or anything, and just to relax and enjoy things more. Absolutely, the effortless effort. Absolutely, it's critical to enjoy the journey. You know, it's, I think we get caught up in the idea of goals and ambitions and where we'd like. The thing is that uh, it may sound overly pithy or something, but if we craft this idea of what we think our life should look like, and then for some reason it doesn't look like that, we feel like we failed in some way. But if we mm-hmm. leave ourselves open, all sorts of things are possible which could potentially be much better than anything we might have imagined for ourselves in the first place. And so, yeah. Definitely, definitely. And imagine that now I gave you the gift of a time machine, which because you're studying philosophy and you have a rich knowledge of technology, you know, is not necessarily a, a possibility, but let's just, let's suspend our disbelief for the moment. <laughs> um and you could use this time machine and go back and do your career all over again. Is there anything that you might do differently? Hmm. And if not, and if the answer is no, that's, of course, completely legitimate <laughs> as well. No, I think I'm quite happy with how everything has turned out. And I think that how everything has resolved so far is the best way it could have resolved for me. And I'm quite pleased. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, my final question today, do you have any final pieces of advice for someone who is navigating that journey through different career stages? Sure. I would say my advice would be don't get discouraged. No matter what your goal is, uh, you can certainly get there. And I would say tune into the thing, that voice inside that's compelling you to take action. That's, That's what you should take direction from. Don't overthink it, <laughs> you know, tune into that voice within and, and pursue it and you'll get to where you need to go. Wonderful. And reminds me, I was reading a book by an astronaut the other week and he's saying that it might be a one in a million chance, but if you don't try, then it's a zero in a million chance. That's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So some really interesting topics emerging there over the course of of this discussion today i mean some things that really stood out to me are um, the importance of ethics in your work that actually some of the perceptions that we might have around consulting and technology are not accurate at all and in fact these are very ethical human-centric industries to be working within some of the other things that are uh, emerging very strongly have been um also the value of bringing multiple disciplines together, not working in a siloed way, but actually recognizing that the things that connect us academically are really quite significant and that there's always scope to expand into other areas and bring knowledge from other disciplines together. And the fact that you can plan as much as you like, but life has a habit of going in a completely different direction. I mean, just how those changes can come out of nowhere and this has been such an illuminating discussion for me today Carlo and I'm sure our listeners will find it similarly enjoyable wonderful thank you so much yeah it's been a great conversation this was the seventh season of the Global Careers Calls podcast brought to you by the University of London Career Service you can find our episodes on your favourite streaming platforms including Acast Spotify 
Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and many more. All links and resources mentioned by our host are in the episode notes. This episode was hosted by Dr. Edmund Ma, edited by Bushra Janu, and introduced by me, Sneha Ramanathan. We'll publish more episodes in the following weeks with some inspiring stories from our global graduate cohort. So please subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time for a new global careers call.